Scripture reading for today comes from Hebrews 11, verses 30 and 31, and then Joshua 2, verses 1 through 24. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Joshua 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax and she had laid, that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, and Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, Please swear to me by the Lord that, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. 
Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated. And welcome again to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, you know, some translations of that Isaiah 48 response that we just said, um, don't say that the word of God endures forever. They say that the word of God stands forever. And after a long scripture reading like last week and this week, you're probably thinking to yourself, I've been standing forever. Thank you. I appreciate that. Again, we stand during the word of God as a way to differentiate it from the sermon, my word. I could make a mistake speaking up here, but God's word is without error, and so that's why we stand for it. We are continuing our sermon series through Hebrews 11 called By Faith, and each week what we've been doing is looking at one of the Old Testament saints that are, that's mentioned in Hebrews 11 and considering their faith, considering our own faith, but then always looking to the perfecter of our faith, Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at Rahab. Now, if you were with us last Advent, um, our Advent sermon series was called The Mothers of Jesus. It was based on the women that were mentioned in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1. And so we had sermons on Tamar and Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary. But I don't know if you know this, there are actually five women mentioned in Matthew 1. And because Advent is only four Sundays, we had to skip one. And the one that we skipped was Rahab. But she's getting her day today. And so we're going to be looking more closely at Rahab and her story and her faith. And as we do so, we'll have three points. One, wilderness. Two, welcome. And three, walls. Our God is a God who tears down walls to welcome those who wander in the wilderness. And so let's begin with our first point, wilderness. Before we can talk too much about our Joshua 2 passage, we need to back up just a little bit. Uh, Last week, we focused on the people crossing the Red Sea. And uh, this week, we're to the point where the people are about to enter the promised land, but a lot happens between those two stories. And the bulk of the time that passes for the people of Israel is spent wandering in the wilderness. Uh, They wander for 40 years in the wilderness, actually. And I alluded to this uh, in last week's sermon, uh, but in Numbers 14, the Israelites send some spies into the land, and they realize that the people are strong, that their cities are large, and they freak out. They start making plans to go back to Egypt. They start making plans to pick a new leader. And so then God tells them, he's not going to let that generation enter the land because of their lack of of faith, and instead they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Not even Moses gets to enter the promised land. Only the next generation does. So it's at the end of Israel's wilderness years that our story in Joshua 2 takes place. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the people of Israel have a chance to take the promised land again by faith. But it's not just Israel that has been experiencing wilderness. Rahab has been experiencing wilderness too. Do you see how Rahab has been experiencing wilderness? Well, you can see it on a couple levels. 
Uh, first, she's a Canaanite. The Canaanites are a people that have set themselves against God. They're wicked. They've been storing up wrath for themselves. They were known for lots of abominable practices like child sacrifice. And that's the people that Rahab is a part of. And you could think of that as a sort of a wilderness for her. That's her family. That's her nation. That's her people. That's all she's ever known, the people of Canaan who are wicked and storing up wrath. And so she's been living in a sort of spiritual wilderness because of the people that she lives among. She has no idea what the Lord is like or how the Lord wants her to live. All the people around here are constantly defying God's ways. And so it's a spiritual wilderness for Rahab. Have you ever felt like you were living in a spiritual wilderness? Have you ever felt dry in your faith, like you're in the desert? Do you, do you feel today like maybe your life is a little bit of a spiritual wilderness? One possible reason that that might be the case is that you're surrounded by people who could care less about the Lord. You know, maybe, you know, you connect with church from time to time, or you come to some worship services, you make community group every once in a while, but day in, day out, most of the people who surround you, most of the people who influence you, most of the people who have an impact on your life could not care less about the Lord, and that affects you. And so you begin to feel dry, you feel like you're in a spiritual wilderness. And sometimes what can be a particularly dangerous a form of this spiritual wilderness is when the people in our lives, you know, say they're Christians. Maybe they truly are, but faith is never a part of our conversations or time together. And so we may trick ourselves into believing that we have fellowship with other believers, but if we really examined our time together, faith and the Lord maybe played very little role in our time. Give me relationships like that with a believer, but your faith never comes up. Whatever the case may be, it's worth, worth it for all of us to seriously consider how many touch points we have with the body of Christ throughout our weeks. You know, how many chances do you get to pray with other believers? How many chances do you get to bear one another's burdens? How many times do you get to remind each other to apply the gospel to our lives, to the complex situations we all face? Because look, there are seven days in a week probably something like 120 waking hours, uh, several more hours if you have an eight-month-old baby. And, uh, you know, this time right now, Sunday worship, which I obviously hold in very high regard, but it's just one day out of seven, two hours out of 120. Are you connecting with believers any of the other six days of the week? Are you connecting with Christians any of the other 118 hours? You know, if if not, I mean, one, I suggest maybe connecting with a community group in our church if you haven't already. That's a great touch point with the body of Christ during your week. Uh, or maybe pursue someone individually in the church or just anyone you know who's a Christian uh, for some sort of weekly or biweekly coffee before work, lunch in the middle of the day, happy hour before you head home, something to combat spiritual wilderness creeping into your life. You know, I'm, a major source of spiritual dryness, that sense of spiritual wilderness, is based on who surrounds you. Who do you have meaningful relationships with? You know, just like for Rahab, the people you live among will have a significant impact on your spiritual 
life. But as I said, Rahab actually had two levels of wilderness. So the first was because her entire life was among this wicked pagan people. But second, Rahab experienced wilderness because she was a prostitute. And obviously there's a sense of wilderness just in the fact that Rahab was using her sexuality in a way that God did not design and never intended for. Uh, But we're not going to focus on that. What I want to focus on is how most likely prostitutes in Canaan were treated very similarly to how modern-day people tend to treat prostitutes. They're alienated from society oftentimes, uh, ostracized, separated. They're the butt of jokes. Most likely, Rahab was estranged from her family, and that was either a precursor to her becoming a prostitute or a result of her becoming a prostitute. But either way, she likely did not have family that she could depend on. She was probably lonely. And that was a second kind of wilderness for her. Alienation, estrangement, separation from a normal functioning society, and likely even her own family. It would be like living in the wilderness. And so again, have you ever felt like that? Like you have few people that you can depend on, maybe no one that you can depend on. Have you ever felt like something about the way you are keeps people away from you? Uh, Or maybe something you've done wrong. Uh, Maybe something you've truly done wrong has made you believe that people keep you at arm's Length. Have you ever felt that kind of wilderness, of separation, of alienation, of loneliness? Well, again, what I want to point you back to is the church, the body of Christ, and even this local expression of it. You know, we're not perfect, but we do seek to be a church that whatever situation or place you're coming from, you'll be welcome here. Anyone can come to our worship services. Anyone can come to the Sunday night dinners. Anyone could check out a community group. We're, we're not perfect, but we do try, try and desire to be a safe place for whoever walks in the doors. But I do have to be forthright. While we do seek to be a safe place to come as you are, We believe that once people encounter the gospel, once people experience God's grace, once people get to know Jesus a little bit better, it's actually impossible to stay as you are. And so come as you are, but fair warning, once you meet Jesus, he will not leave you as you are. He's going to start working in you. Because that's the the business that Jesus is in. If you're familiar with Matthew's gospel, Uh, Do you know what happens immediately after Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist? He spends some time in the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. And so, you know, you struggle with wilderness. You struggle with temptation. Jesus has been in both of those places. He's been there. He knows what it's like. He knows what you're going through. He can sympathize with you. And yet, he never gave in to temptation. He was able to do what we're often unable to do. Now, the cynic among you may say, okay, yeah, well, Jesus is God, so he can't really sympathize with my wilderness. He can't really sympathize with my temptation because he never gave in. I give in all the time. And so Jesus knows nothing of what it's like for me to be tempted. But you're wrong. 
the fact that Jesus withstood temptation and never gave in actually guarantees that he knows what it's like to experience the same strength of temptation, says you. Do you see how that works? Do you see what I mean? Like, imagine temptation could be represented on some sort of 1 to 10 scale. 1 being the easiest, 10 being the hardest. And, you know, we would all go through this group exercise where we start off experiencing level 1 temptations. And then level two temptations, and then level three temptations, and so on. And as the temptation levels increase one by one, we all reach a temptation that we fail to withstand, and we're out. We give in, and we fail. But Jesus never gives in. He hits level five, then six, then seven, then eight, then nine, then ten, and he passes them all, right? He's the only one who could withstand all ten levels of temptation, which means that whatever level of temptation you have experienced and failed at, he's been there but succeeded. So he does know what it's like. He has been there. He sympathizes with you. Jesus is a God who sympathizes. So you can see the implications then in his ministry. Right? You know what group of people was often the recipient of Jesus' compassion? Prostitutes. The sexually immoral. He's incredibly gentle and compassionate with them. He has sympathy for them. And he still makes it clear that they need to leave that life behind. But he doesn't condemn them. He doesn't say, get away from me. He doesn't treat them the way the rest of society treats them. He says, come out of the wilderness. Come to me. Find forgiveness. Find a true home. Find rest. Come out of the wilderness and come to me, is Jesus' invitation to prostitutes, to the sexually immoral, to everyone. So you have the woman at the well in John 4. You have the woman of the city in Luke 7. You have Mary Magdalene all being drawn to Jesus and becoming some of his earliest followers because he can sympathize, because he has compassion on them. And so if you have any fear of what might happen if you try to step away from the wilderness in your life and step toward Jesus, let me assure you, you have nothing to be afraid of. Jesus sympathizes with what you've been through. He sympathizes with your temptation. He has compassion for you. He's waiting for you with open arms. So just take that step away from the wilderness and toward Jesus. Okay, let's not not forget that it wasn't just prostitutes in Jesus' day who the Lord was compassionate toward. Rahab was also a prostitute who the Lord had compassion for, and she responded to the Lord's compassion in faith by welcoming Israel's spies. And so that takes us to our second point, welcome. Uh, When I was in seminary, I spent a couple summers doing an internship at a church in Seattle. In my very first summer up there, on uh, one of the Sundays where we were gathering for worship, a parent came up to me after the service and told me, that their son, who was maybe five or six, uh, their son had told them that they shouldn't trust me. And the reason he told them that was because, according to their son, I was wearing a disguise. And because I was wearing a disguise, that most likely meant that I was a spy. And therefore, they should not trust me. But of course, I wasn't wearing a disguise. I looked the same then as I do now. And so me and the parents, you know, we laughed. We didn't really know what their son meant. Uh, but then later on, I thought about it, and I realized that my faith, my face does kind of look like I'm wearing a disguise because my faith looks a little bit like this slide. 
Like, if I was wearing that and took it off, you couldn't tell the difference, right? Same person. I think that's what this boy meant when he said I was wearing a disguise. Uh, For those of you listening on the podcast, just Google image search Groucho Marx disguise, and you'll understand. Well, in our our Joshua 2 passage, there were actual spies. I don't know if they were wearing disguises or not, but Joshua sent two spies from among the Israelites to secretly check out a major city in the land of Canaan, Jericho. Uh, And this is part of their preparation to take the promised land. And uh, when they got there, they went to Rahab's house, and she took them in. Uh, This is part of what Hebrews 11 mentions about Rahab's faith. By faith, she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. She welcomed them into her home. But she did a whole lot more than just welcome them into her home. She covered for them. You know, when some of the king's men came looking for the spies at Rahab's house, she hid them on the roof. And then she told the king's men, yes, they came here, but they've left. And so maybe if you leave now, you can catch up to them. And so the king's men, you know, they leave, and then Rahab can finally talk to the spies. And she says to them in verses 9 through 11, I know that the Lord has given you the land. In fact, fear of you has fallen upon everyone who lives in the land now. We heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. The Lord your God, he is the God of the heavens above and the earth beneath. Now, this is essentially Rahab's conversion. It's her profession of faith. This is when she expresses her faith in the true God. You know, she, a Gentile, a pagan, a Canaanite, has heard about Israel's God, and with her lips, she confesses that he is the God of heaven and earth. Now, this is when God welcomes Rahab into his people. This is the moment referenced in the New Testament regarding Rahab's faith. God welcomed Rahab into his people by the faith that she expressed in this moment. As a contrast, remember how the Israelites often struggled to continue trusting God, even after they saw with their own eyes how uh, the Lord had led them out of Egypt across the Red Sea on dry land? You know, Rahab did not see that with her own eyes. She only heard about it. You know, she says, we heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. She didn't see it. She heard it. And yet she still placed her trust in God. I mean, talk about faith. It reminds me of what Jesus says in John 20. You know, after Thomas sees Jesus and touches him and says he believes, Jesus says, You believe because you have seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, Rahab is one who had not seen, but still believed. And so I want to point out Rahab's faith. And I specifically want to point out how Rahab's faith was accompanied by action, by good works, you could say. She didn't just simply believe. She didn't just simply with her lips say, I believe. She believed and acted. She believed and did good works. You know, one of the big questions in Christianity is, how do good works and faith relate to one another? Because the gospel message is clear. Works play no role in your salvation. We are saved by grace through faith, which is a gift of God. We are not saved by good works. But what can happen 
is that can be taken too far where people end up reasoning, well, because good works play no role in my salvation, then I'm not going to worry about them at all. I've got my get-out-of-hell-free card, and the rest of my life doesn't really matter. I'm saved by grace through faith, not by works. But James, in his epistle in the New Testament, James corrects that misconception. His famous verse, James 2.26, says, Faith without works is dead. You can't separate faith that saves from good works. If you have saving faith, good works will follow. The good works aren't what save you. They may be imperfect, they may be inconsistent, but they will be present. If they aren't present, James warns, you should not be so sure you have saving faith. Your faith may be dead, and a dead faith is not a saving faith. Interestingly, James actually provides two Old Testament examples of people who proved their faith by their good works. The first is Abraham. Abraham believed God and went to offer Isaac on the altar, and that's something we'll talk about in December, later on in this series. So that's the first person that James mentions as an example, Abraham. But he mentions one more Old Testament saint. Can you guess who? Rahab, James 2.25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Rahab's welcome, Rahab's hospitality, Rahab's protection for the spies were good works that proved her faith was genuine. They flowed from her faith in the Lord. Because Rahab, by faith, believed that Israel's God was the true God, it changed how she acted. It changed the things she did. It changed her loyalties. Has your faith in the true God, in Jesus, changed how you live? Has it changed the good works you do? Have your priorities been reordered? Have your values shifted since you encountered Jesus and the gospel? As I said earlier, Jesus invites everyone to come as they are. You do not have to reform a single thing about yourself to come to Jesus. But once you encounter him, once you place your faith in him, once you trust him, things are going to change. That's how faith works. Do you see that? Do you see the inseparable link between faith and works? You know, if we look a little more closely at Rahab, it can maybe help us to imagine our own faith and good works. You know, as I said, when Rahab heard of the Lord's works, she believed them. But not only did she believe them, she chose to align herself with the Lord rather than against him. She says that the other people in Canaan heard the same reports. Seems like they believed the reports because they were afraid, but they conspired to stop the Lord and his people. But not Rahab. Rahab trusted in the Lord and aligned herself with him. And so God saves Rahab. He places her among his people. She's eventually in the genealogies of King David and Jesus. She is welcomed into the people of God. She was alienated. She was an outsider. She was living in the spiritual wilderness of Canaan, and God welcomed her in to the people of God. That's the faith side of Rahab's story. But the works side of the story is this. As one who had been welcomed into the people of God, as one who had been welcomed by God himself, what did Rahab do? She welcomed others. She welcomed the spies of Israel. Do you see that? The the faith side of things. By faith, Rahab was welcomed by God. 
Then from that position, as one who by faith had been welcomed by God, she turned around and did good works. She turned around and was welcoming herself. She welcomed others. That's how faith and works are tied together. That's how good works flow from saving faith. And there's actually a fascinating redemption in Rahab's story. Remember her occupation? It would have been totally normal for her to have strange men coming and going from her house at all times of day, right? And in God's sovereignty, that's likely how she was able to so skillfully welcome and harbor these spies. It probably seemed totally normal to her neighbors who happened to be around to see strange men coming and going. But this time, she was not welcoming strange men for her usual reasons. She was welcoming them by faith. She was welcoming them as a good work before this new God, the God of Israel, the Lord. And he was about to transform her life. He was already beginning to do it. These nefarious forms of welcoming and hospitality that you used to practice, Rahab, I'm redeeming them. You'll still be welcoming and hospitable, but it won't be for this small business you've been running. It's going to be part of my plan to bring my people into the promised land. Isn't that amazing how perfectly God would, be, would weave and redeem Rahab's wilderness, her past, her brokenness, her alienation, her sin, how perfectly God would weave and redeem all of that into his work that he was doing, into bringing his people into the promised land. And of course, if God can do that with Rahab's story, God can do that with your story too. What aspects of the gospel message are particularly relevant to your story? You know, were you like Rahab, living in a wilderness of sorts, lonely, dry spiritually, but then Jesus welcomed you in and promised to stick with you? And so now you welcome others and make sure that they never feel lonely again? Or maybe you were blind before to spiritual realities, but God opened your eyes so you could see And now, as one who sees, you help others to see, too. Or maybe you were oppressed, but God advocated for you. God pled your case, and now you help to advocate for the oppressed. Maybe you were broken before, but God put you back together again. And now, you help others to heal and be put back together again. Maybe you were depressed before. Life was dark, but then God announced good news of great joy, and you saw some light in your life for the first time. And now you help people living in darkness to see tiny glimmers of light so they can take that first step out of the darkness. Maybe you were abandoned by someone who was supposed to take care of you, Maybe you've felt abandoned in the past. Do you see how the gospel is a salve for those who have been abandoned? God chose you. When others didn't, God chose you. God wanted you to be a part of his family. And now, embracing your chosenness, embracing your adoption into God's family, you can help make sure that no one ever feels abandoned again. You can help those who have been abandoned to become chosen and adopted. I could go on, but do you get the picture? Do you see how the gospel impacts your life? The grace of the gospel message that we embrace by faith has very specific impacts on us. And when you've been impacted by it, it changes you. It motivates you. It redeems you 
so that you can co-labor with God to do the same sort of gospel work in the life of others. That's the faith and works connection. You can't help it. Once your faith has brought the gospel to bear on your life, you can't help but turn around and have the gospel have impact in the lives of people around you. Now, that might feel impossible to some of you today. It might seem like there are just too many obstacles in the way, like there is a wall between you and the work that God is calling you to. Well, thankfully, God is in the business of tearing down walls. And that brings us to our final point, walls. In uh, 1987, President Reagan gave a speech in West Berlin, which, of course, was divided from East Berlin by the Berlin Wall. And in his speech, the president said these famous lines to the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And later on in the speech, he said that he had noticed someone had spray-painted on the wall. This wall will fall. Beliefs become reality. And Reagan commented, yes, across Europe, this wall will fall, for it cannot stand, for it cannot withstand faith. He really said that. He connected faith with walls coming down. And of course, a little more than two years later, that's exactly what happened. The Berlin Wall came down. And now pieces of the wall are all around the world. There are events to remember when the wall came down because it was a powerful moment. Walls coming down are significant, significant moments because they, they represent so much. They represent people who are divided becoming united. They represent oppressive regimes losing their power to people. They represent the impossible becoming possible. The story that we're tracking in the book of Joshua with Rahab is another story of walls coming down. Our Hebrews 11 passage, 1130, says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, because our God is a God who tears down walls. The story of Rahab and her faith is a story of God tearing down walls. And so again, if you're here today and it feels like there are too many obstacles, too big of walls that need to come down in order for you to come to God, in order for you to be changed by God, in order for you to be used by God, whatever it is, I want you to see and take hope in the fact that our God is a God who tears down walls. We can see it in several ways in just this story alone. First, God brought down the walls of Jericho. And this parallels the full scope of salvation, of not just God bringing you out of slavery, but also bringing you into the promised land, which is literally what he did for the Israelites, but it's spiritually what he's done for you in Christ. And of course, you know, the ground for the walls coming down was being laid with the spies and Rahab. She was allowing them to get a look at the task at hand so that they could plan their you know, military invasion of Jericho. Uh, and the plan was for her to hang a red cord, a scarlet cord, from her window in the wall so that they would know where she lived and protect her. But what's interesting is that the walls ended up not being brought down by Joshua and the, the army. Uh, if you read further on into Joshua in chapter 6, what God has the people do is not a military invasion, they march around Jericho for six days. They just walk around it for six days. And then on the seventh day, he has the people shout and blow trumpets. And when they do, the walls come crumbling down. Of course, 
because it was purely an act of God. The people marched around by faith, and God was the one who brought down the walls, which again is a parallel of God's salvation for us. It's totally his act. God makes the impossible possible. He brings down the walls between us and him. He forgives us. And our role is simply to respond in faith. He's going to do the work to accomplish it. And so if there's any hesitation about coming to God, about coming to Jesus for the first time, if you feel like you need to do some work first, you don't. God will bring down that wall. All you have to do is respond in faith. And so God brings down the walls of Jericho, and the Israelites capture the city. They defeat the people, and they save and protect Rahab like they promised. Um, But they actually save more than just Rahab. They save her entire household. And that leads to the second way that God brings down walls in this story. God brought down walls in Rahab's family, relational walls. If you remember, when Rahab helped the spies hide and escape, she asked for one thing in return. She says in Joshua 2, 12-13, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Again, most likely, given her profession, she did not have a close relationship with her household. She was likely estranged from her parents and siblings, but she still asks for the spies to protect them. And the spies agree. Verse 14, our life for yours, even to death. And they make a plan so that they'll know to preserve Rahab and her household by hanging the scarlet cord from her window. And they tell her that everyone who is inside her house when they come will be protected. Everyone outside will be defeated. But everyone inside of Rahab's house will be protected. So after they leave, what, Rahab do, what does Rahab do? She has to go seek out her family. She needs to seek them out because they probably have not stepped foot in her house before. But Rahab needs to seek out her family and tell them about the Lord's work in Egypt, the spies that she helped out, and she needs to invite them to come to her home so that they can be saved. But of course, if, if they've been estranged, then Rahab needs the relational walls to come down. She needs the relational walls in her family to come down first. She needs forgiveness and reconciliation in her family before she could ever hope to have them over and save them. But that must be exactly what happens because in Joshua 6, when the walls come down, we read that when the spies go to Rahab's house, her mother, her father, her siblings, and all the relatives were there. They're all saved. Rahab's faith doesn't just save her. It also reconciles her with her family and is how they're saved too and join the people of God. And so, who in your life could God do the same thing with? Between you and who, is there a wall? Uh, A family member, a, a friend, was there a conflict, a fight, estrangement, alienation? God is able to bring down that wall. But he might have you be the one to take the first step of faith. You know, Rahab would have had to have been the one to seek out her family and to invite them into her life, into her home. Is there someone that you need to invite into your home? Is there someone you need to seek out? It'll be a step of faith. You won't know how it's going to work out when you begin seeking them out. You won't know 
what's going to happen. That's the nature of faith. But God is able to bring down the walls that divide us relationally. And so take that first step of faith and ask him to be with you as you do. Finally, one more wall that we see God bring down through the story of Rahab. God brought down the walls of ethnic division between the people of God and pagans, between Jews and Gentiles. As I mentioned earlier, Rahab was not an Israelite. She was a Canaanite. She was a pagan. She was a Gentile. She was not a member of God's chosen people. Except she was a member of God's chosen people. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham? That through him and his offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed? That through Abraham's offspring, a great nation would be raised up, and that nation would be a blessing to all nations so that people like Rahab, so that people like you, so that people like me would be blessed. You see, even through God choosing the Israelites as a special people, that was just to get things started. God's blessing was never meant to be limited to the Israelites. It was for the entire world. And Rahab, among some other Old Testament characters, uh, but Rahab was a foretaste of that blessing going out to all nations. She was one of the first Gentiles to join God's people, but she would not be the last. Far from it. In the New Testament, the gospel goes forward like wildfire among Gentiles. You know, before Christ, Gentiles would join the people of God here and there, but after Christ, I mean, uh, the best way to describe it is the walls came down. That's actually exactly how the Apostle Paul describes it in Ephesians. Ephesians four thirteen through 16, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, that is Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. For he has made us both one, Jews and Gentiles, one. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, thereby killing the hostility. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. God brings down the walls of ethnic division. The gospel tears down the dividing wall of hostility between different ethnic groups that we typically see in the world. And, you know, our church is a testament to that, right? New Life's members... Regular attenders see Koreans, Indonesians, Chinese, white, Hispanic, black, all gathering around Jesus together, all united in Christ. God brings down the walls of ethnic divide. Even our small little church bears witness to that fact that our God is a God who tears down walls. He tears down walls to welcome those who wander in the wilderness. He's been doing that. He will continue to do that until the end of the age. And there's this beautiful passage in Romans 7 where John is witnessing the scene in heaven. And what does he see? People from every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping the Lord united. It's something you can almost not imagine in this lifetime, except we get little glimpses of it like today. And so hold on to that. Our God is a God who tears down walls to welcome those who wander in the wilderness. He's tearing down the walls that keep us from salvation. He's tearing down the walls that split up families. He's tearing down the walls that divide ethnic groups. And we will all be united one day, worshiping God in heaven.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you that you have called us out of the spiritual wilderness and welcomed us into relationship with you. Father, we admit, we confess that there are so many walls that we worry will never come down, that divide us from you, that divide us from doing what you've called us to, that divide us from one another. But Father, we pray that by faith we would believe that you are able and willing to bring down the walls in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit, for your Son who died on the cross to forgive our sins. We pray this all in his name. Amen.